You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is a very special one because this is the first episode in which I've invited a male guest to join me on the show, and that guest is Aaron Flores. Aaron is an anti-diet, haze-informed dietitian and certified body trust provider whose goal is to help his clients relearn what it means to be an intuitive eater and to reclaim body trust. Aaron has lived experience with disordered eating and chronic dieting and is here to remind all of us that male-identifying folks struggle with eating disorders too. So if you are a male listener or know any men who are struggling with an eating disorder, I highly recommend you share this episode with them so that they know that they are not alone and that their struggles are valid even though the world is telling them that they're not so much because the stereotype is that eating disorders are only for women, and that's just not true. In fact, approximately one in three people experiencing an eating disorder is male, according to the National Eating Disorders Association. So all those male listeners just wanted to send you my love, my acknowledgement, and connect you with Aaron, because Aaron is such a powerful, supportive, encouraging voice in this field that needs to be heard. So with that, I hope you all enjoy this episode of the show. Hey, Aaron, how are you today? I'm doing well, Meg. It's great to be here. And thank you for having me on the show. Well, thank you for much for being on the show. This is a historic moment for the Full and Thriving podcast because you are the first man on the show, our first male guest. It's very <laughs> exciting for me. How do you feel? <laughs> uh, it's a lot to live up to, but I think I can handle it. Great. Well, I'm really excited to talk to you all about you know men's issues with body image and disordered eating and eating disorders. And before we dive into that topic today, I'd love to hear about your personal story. Did you ever struggle with chronic dieting or body image issues yourself? I think if you talk to any dietitian who works with eating disorders or probably any dietitian, they probably should answer it in the affirmative. Some (laughs) might not, but I think that's what probably brings most of us to this work in a lot of ways. So yeah, I totally did. And I became a dietitian when I was 30. It was a career change for me. And I had been doing a lot of different things, mostly working in the dot-com world, doing internet game development. I was a college dropout. And So career-wise, I was really struggling to find my path. And I would say probably since 
teenage years, I had sort of struggled in some way with body image or trying to fit in or noticing my body didn't quite fit. I saw a dietitian when I was 15 at the encouragement of my mom and with the intention of losing weight. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do anything, she said, because I was 15 and teenagers don't listen to authorities at that age. And so I didn't. I did it later when I went to college. I had no food rules. Finally, I definitely ate in a way that was pretty troublesome just because I was didn't really know how to feed myself in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And once I dropped out of school and I was back in L.A., I woke up one day and said, hey, I'm going to lose weight. And I did. And I did everything this dietitian when I was 15 taught me to do. What she taught me was how to have an eating disorder. Mm. She taught me eating disorder behaviors for sure. And was not doing that intentionally, but that was the prescription is, you know, do all of these very restrictive behaviors, rigid, restrictive behaviors. There is no wiggle room and you have to do them all the time to see the results to be smaller. And it worked. And I got privilege and my body changed and I got acceptance. I got praise. I got more attention and it fueled a really troublesome relationship with food and my body. And it was in that period of time that I decided to become a dietitian. So I came to this work really from a perspective of my own weight loss, but also saying, if I can do it, everyone can, and not really understanding how problematic of a way of thinking that is. So I spent probably my undergrad and part of my internship and part of my, and the beginning of my career as wanting to focus on weight loss and teach people how to lose weight. And I learned about intuitive eating and body trust and health at every size at varying stages of my young career and did a complete 180 and said, I can't work like this. Like this is not going to work for me or my clients. And I did a complete 180 and I started to work with folks with eating disorders. I started to think about what does it mean to be weight inclusive? What does it mean to weave more social justice into my work? And it brought me to where I am today. So that's the the Reader's Digest, you know, sort of summary of sort of how I got here. Well, thank you so much for that. There's a lot to that life. Uh, And I guess my first question for you is what was it like being a teenage boy and then a young adult who wasn't fitting into this standard of, I don't know, beauty, I guess, for men, like not fitting into that ideal body size. What was it like for you going through those years? Listen, being a teenager is hard, period. I don't want to go back to that time of my life for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think we're we're awkward. We're sort of learning what it means to be an adult and to differentiate from our families. And it's hard. So I would say I didn't pin a lot of it on my body at the time. I probably pinned a lot of it on other things that would make it hard. And I had a great group of friends right? It's not like I was bullied or isolated in any ways. I had a lot of connections and we were a very tight group, both at school. And then I was very involved at a summer camp and those were very great and positive things. And I noticed my body wasn't the same as others. So mm-hmm. I played volleyball and, you know, I was not going to be a part of the starting six. I could not jump as high as everyone. You know, I wasn't going to perform athletically. And no matter how much I tried to that same level, I 
you know, struggled at sort of that my body looked a little bit different when my shirt was off. Do I take my shirt off? Do I not take my shirt off? And as I got older in my 20s, I started to notice more of that being related to my body. Mm. I would say what I noticed a lot was a comparison piece of comparing my body to others. I think there was a lot of parts in my early 20s where I didn't want to do certain things because of my body or not feeling like I was allowed to do certain things or it would have been really hard to do certain things. Like no one would really want to date me. You know, I don't really want to go on a hike, even though it might be fun, you know, and on converse side, there were some things that kept me from, but there were also a lot of things that I didn't stop me from doing. But I would say it was an underlying issue that would go range from like, you know, level two out of 10 importance to sort of seven, eight, nine out of 10 importance, depending on really the situation and what was going on around me. But the key thing I think that's important to sort of name is that I didn't talk about it with anyone. It was just something I dealt with on my own. And I don't know if my friends at that time struggled or not with it at all, because we didn't talk about it. It wasn't something that was on the table for any sort of discussion. Mm. I get the sense that's the quote normal experience for most men is that they keep it secret, even with their closest friends. It's not talked about. Would you say that's accurate? Yes, in some ways. And I think the ways it does get talked about, if it does, is through humor and through, you know, sort of ridicule or joking with a friend. Mm. And I think that's the only way that it does come up. I think in working with clients and, and sort of talking to men about this issue, the folks that are involved in athletics, I think there's a lot of scrutiny and shame and pressure that comes from both teammates, but also coaches to have a specific body to perform for folks that aren't involved in athletics. I think it's still like that, again, this joking thing or something that could be a place where they're bullied or teased or mocked by people that aren't friends, right. In a very traumatic, harmful way. So it comes up, but in nothing that is supportive, it's usually something that actually probably makes it worse or uses fear or shame as a motivator for change. Mm, Yeah. That's so sad. I always feel so bad for men in the sense that there is this, and I'm speaking from just my experience of observation, right? But like feeling Mm -hmm. like that sense of vulnerability is really hard to tap on a peer-to-peer level, which might be why the humor is used so much. Possibly. Yeah. And here's, but I think it's also to, important to name that even as we look at across all genders, how people experience body image issues, especially as teenagers and especially as, you know, in their twenties, even though there might be conversations about it or where it might be accessible, I don't know how many of those conversations are truly helpful or healing, Mm -hmm. right? I think it's a different kind of shame that different genders are going to experience this conversation around. I think Everyone is being influenced by weight stigma and fat phobia and anti-fat bias and diet culture. It's impacting people in different ways, but I think the uniform experience is that no one's really getting any positive or compassionate support around this issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's a difficult topic and nobody is really trained unless you're a professional on how to have these 
productive, helpful, supportive conversations, maybe as a friend. Yeah. Yeah. And I would even say professionals are not very well trained. I think I fumble through it a lot and I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how much training is really good out there about having these discussions for professionals. So again, I think zooming out, of course, we can't do it as friends because we're not seeing it really well done in a lot of spaces. Yeah. Right. So I think it is really challenging. And so it is really hard for a friend to give empathy because there's no framework for it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. So fascinating. So bringing it back to your story, you also mentioned that you noticed you ended up experiencing more privilege once you did lose the weight. And what was that like for you going through, you know, the eating disorder? And also, did you know it was disordered at the time? So I didn't know anything really about eating disorders. I had a very understandable, stereotypical understanding of what an eating disorder is. And I thought of it as the after school special, you know, woman having a really hard time with being with food and being very thin and struggling in that way. So that was my idea of what an eating disorder was. So I didn't know it was problematic at all. I just thought I was a really good dieter, to be honest. How did it feel to get all those things? I hate to say it, but it was intoxicating. It was great, you know, to finally have positive attention rather than feel invisible Mm -hmm. or feel like you're going to be mocked is great. And this is why, you know, diet culture is so strong is because when you experience some thin privilege, the world does open up to you and you realize how the world is really catering to smaller bodies. And there are very sort of subtle and overt messages that being in a larger body is really not okay. So to experience those things was really Of course it felt good. You know, I could shop at any store. I could, you know, no one stared at me if I ate by myself at a restaurant, right? You know, online dating was very different in the 90s than what it is today. But, you know, people would answer my profile. I mean, I got compliments. Yeah, it felt great. And what no one knew is that I still wasn't happy on the inside. Like I still was like extremely rigid with food and had a lot of fear and anxiety around food and thought about food all the time. So it was great to get all this praise, but it also felt really shitty. Like I was not happy. Like I was not doing well internally, mentally, probably physiologically either, but like, yeah, it was not like unicorns and rainbows in my head. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's important to outline as well as like, even if you were to achieve those quote dieting goals, you end up feeling Mm -hmm. probably very disconnected from yourself on so many levels. And so at what point did you, cause I don't know if you experienced this, but did you, when you were going through that phase, did you think like, this isn't sustainable? Like there's no way I'm going to be, you thought you were in that for life. Oh yeah. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah. No, there was no doubt. Like, this is going to be the rest of my life. Okay. So yeah. you, no, you, were, totally. you like tapped into like the secret to yep. life. Yeah. Again, to even say it, like I'm embarrassed to say it <laughs> right now, but no, that's totally what I felt. Like, I felt like this is, again, that led me to be a dietitian. Like if I figured out the key, then why would I not want to share it with everyone? 
Mm-hmm. Right. That was my mentality. And so, huh. no, I, I didn't think that it was ever going to not work. Mm-hmm. That was one thing because I have lived experience with an eating disorder as well. Of course, there is a sense of privilege being in an eating disorder in a thin body and then recovering into a thin body. Like I don't have the same mm-hmm. experience. But when I was in the depths of my eating disorder, there was a part of me that was like, this isn't sustainable at all. Like there's no way I'm going to maintain this. Like, yeah. My voice was very loud. My, I knew my body was just waiting to kind of get back to its set point, but I didn't have the words for that. So I just yeah. wasn't sure if that's something you had felt, but it sounds like you were convinced that oh, this yeah. golden ticket to like quote perfect life you dieting mm-hmm. always promised. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I, I think over, over time I realized it's not right. And yeah. like, you know, I was like, you know, I couldn't keep that rigidity. Right. And eventually like little things would show up and I'm like, Oh my God, I, I can't be this rigid around food anymore. So I, yeah, I got to a point where I realized it wasn't sustainable, but I think in it, I was like, no, this is it. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting to think about. So when did everything start to transform over to body trust, health yeah. and exercise into yeah. a meeting? How did you reach that point? I mean, really the key was I heard one of the co-authors of intuitive eating speak at a local professional meeting, Elise Resch talked about intuitive eating to a group of dietitians here in LA. And it led me to pick the book up and read it. I had been exposed to the book earlier, but it was her speaking that somehow gave me more curiosity around reading it. So I decided to read it. After I read it, I emailed her and just sort of, I reached out to her. I emailed her just to thank her for speaking and writing the book. And she responded and said, listen, I have supervision groups every once a month. Would you like to come? I was like, of course I'd like to come. And it, you know, this is before Zoom or anything. So it was in LA and I, you know, thankfully was in LA. And I, so for like, you know, once a month I went to supervision and there were like, it would ebb and flow, but there were anywhere from five to 10 people in that supervision group. And that was really both my own therapy, but also my way of understanding intuitive eating, not just for me, but in this work. That led me to learn more about health at every size. That led me to think more about social justice and weight stigma. And that led me to learn about body trust and become a certified body trust provider. So all of that evolution did not happen overnight, right? I would say it probably took, I don't know, four years, four or five years of like unlearning and maybe even longer to get there. So the reason I want to sort of say that or hone in on that is because there are folks who are, you know, coming to this work now. And just to say, like, it takes time to unravel all this. Like, it's not going to happen overnight. It's going to take some really long work on a personal level to apply it on a professional level. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely a slow learning process. Mm -hmm. You're just unlearning all of those beliefs and rewiring your brain slowly and learning about the social justice behind it. And yeah, it's a process. And and like eating like, Oh, I get to like eat, (laughs) give myself permission to eat. And like, that's hard. And, you know, again, I think our bodies show up in this work, right? We're not, it's not, we're not monoliths. We're not, you know, immune to all the things that we are supporting our clients with. So I had to like go through all that personally as well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
What's it like to go through that while you're supporting others? I mean, it's interesting for sure. I mean, I would say the personal work probably came first before I started to apply a lot of it professionally because it also took a long time professionally to transition. So I would say I did a lot of sort of that personal stuff a little bit before I started to work with clients. But I think the thing that has been helpful is, you know, there's the way of it opening the door to empathy in a different way. And in a way that other folks might sort of also say like, you know, I I know you'll probably get it in some way of what this feels like to be in this. And that doesn't mean to someone without lived experience can't be empathetic. For me, just me, it makes it a little bit more accessible, right? To Mm -hmm. just be in that space and to say, yeah, it's really fucking hard. I get it. Mm -hmm. I think it is helpful for people who are looking for help to at least felt understood. And that can definitely Mm -hmm. open to that understanding. So another question I have for you is what are some of the greatest challenges men face when it comes to healing their relationship with food in their body? Hey friends, I have a major announcement. If you are a regular listener of the show, you know that I am the founder of the Recovery Collective, which is the original online eating disorder recovery community for folks all over the world. Well, on September 20th, we will be opening membership doors again for the last time this year, welcoming an entire new group of beautiful humans who are on the path to healing their eating disorders. And guess what? You can be part of that group. When you join the community, you'll have access to live and pre-recorded workshops group coaching, yoga classes, nourish and learn sessions, meditation and journaling sessions, peer support, and more. You'll also gain a community of friends and peers to connect with and encourage you along the way. So head on over to show notes now and sign up for the waiting list. Remember that doors open on September 20th. So sign up before doors close. Myself and 80 other members of this community can't wait to welcome you inside our little home on the internet. All right, so I'll catch you later. Now back to our planned content. I'll go back to something I said earlier about just my own experience is I think one of the biggest barriers is there's no community. Mm. And I think community is really healing. I think... Mm being witnessed, being understood, being seen is healing. It's part of the reason I started this new podcast called Men Unscripted, where I'm interviewing men about their body story is, you know, I think telling your story, having people listen to it and say, hey, that's me, right, is healing. And so I think we're missing community. I think we're missing representation. Hmm. I think we're missing a lot of folks coming forward and saying, no, it's really hard. Like, I don't like going to the pool or the beach, right? Like, I don't know what to do. Do I take my shirt off? Do I not take my shirt off? Do I avoid it? I really, dating is really hard or, you know, connecting with my partner is really hard because do they find me attractive still? You know, I don't want to sort of be intimate with them. You know, I think all of these layers with which it can be challenging, there's no one sort of that people can look to and say, oh, they're talking about this or their experience is similar to mine. And so when there's no representation, there's no stories, there's no community. And I think community, like I said, is a really important piece. I think the other piece that is really 
hurtful and such a problem is that I think, I don't think a lot of people know. I don't know if a lot of male identified folks know that it's okay to struggle in this area Mm -hmm. or like even identifying that they are struggling in some way, right? It's just sort of gets pushed off into like, well, this is what it is. Like, you know, it doesn't deserve attention or it, I don't need to focus on it because, you know, what's it going to do, right? Mm-hmm. So I think some people are struggling and don't even realize how hard it is. And I think the last piece is the way in which masculinity and capitalism and patriarchy show up in our society. It makes having discussions like this for in a lot of ways and so even if folks do want to talk about it they don't know where to go like they don't know who to go to to talk about it so like all of those you know when you have like sort of these systems of oppression that go throughout our society when we have no community and when we can't identify the struggle i think it makes this perfect soup of like this is going to get worse before it gets better and we need to sort of think about how do we change that in order to provide a space for people to heal. Mm. All very good points. And honestly, I've even noticed, like I was saying to you earlier, I will get the rare direct message on Instagram from a male asking about eating disorder recovery. And sometimes I feel like the energy is more desperate because it's like they finally have someone Mm -hmm. to reach out to. Like they've identified me as someone they feel comfortable reaching out to. And there's tons of questions I usually will get. And then I will try to direct them to help like some sort of organization. And I get the sense that that's where it stops, right? Like there's the fear of taking it to something real beyond Instagram, like taking it to getting actual treatment. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. Yeah. I would even say not moving from anonymous to Mm -hmm. like exposed. Right. Well, I think that makes a lot of sense, right? Again, and I think there's a shift coming, but I think it's also really clear to male identified folks because so many places are women only, you know, like the residents, there are a lot of residential treatments that are only female identified, or they might show up to treatment and be the only male identified person in the room. Uh, So, you know, I think this is that fear is really valid because the community or the treatment world has skewed towards a female identified experience much more than any other gender expressions that are out there. So, you know, it's a subtle message to say like, oh no, there might, this might not be useful for me because there's no one else here that looks like me. So maybe I'm, this is really not a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see how it's just like any stereotype you see, like with the traditional young, thin, affluent white woman eating disorder mm-hmm. stereotype that prevents just women of other backgrounds and sizes from getting help, let alone mm-hmm. I imagine those with a different identity gender wise mm-hmm. to getting the help they need. So I wanted to bring it back to you mentioning that patriarchy and capitalism really make the conversations unsafe or at least feel unsafe for Mm -hmm. male-identifying folks. And I was wondering if you could expand on that. Yeah, yeah, sure. Well, I think, you know, these are really like sort of ingrained thought patterns and systems within our culture. And I think, you know, capitalism shows up in a way where 
the value of a person is based on their work and how successful they are. And that leads to this idea of, well, you just got to work really hard and you'll achieve things. If you're not achieving it, it's because you're not trying hard enough and you need to push past the discomfort or this idea of no pain, no gain. That's a capitalist Mm -hmm. idea, I think, is you need to push past the pain so that you can succeed. And I think it's that kind of thinking that leads to very little self-compassion when we struggle. Because when it comes to body size, people can work as hard as they want, and they might not get the results that they're hoping for. Most people are going to regain weight after over a three to five year period. They're not going to be able to sustain a smaller body, even though they want to. It's not because they're not trying hard enough. It's just that's psychology. I mean, there's things in play outside of our control, but we assume that if I just control it, if I just work hard enough, if I just do better, I will succeed. And therefore my value as a person will increase, Mm. right? I will become more productive. I will become more successful. I will make more money. I will therefore be more attractive. I will be more desirable and on and on and on. Yeah. I think, you know, patriarchy is very similar in a lot of ways because it is a system, you know, I think about patriarchy as a society that is basically run or where major decisions in some way are made by men, right? And so when that happens, we create a culture that is very hyper-masculine where, and masculine ideals are praised and it becomes, you know, this is where the idea of it being toxic comes from, right? Is that it actually becomes really harmful in a lot of ways. And I think male identified folks suffer from patriarchy, right? I think we are oppressed Mm -hmm. by patriarchy in the same way a female identified. I mean, let me rephrase that. We are equal. We are oppressed. It impacts us in different ways, but it does impact us. It does mean we are living by a set of rules that is not really helpful or not really allowing us to connect to a lot of feelings, not really allowing us to connect to each other around hard things. It's prohibiting us from getting help, right? To saying like, no, I'll just struggle through this. Like, I just got to like, again, it's not okay for me to ask for help. So it's up to me to fix this problem. Mm -hmm. So I think when we look at big systems like this, I think it's important to note that it impacts everyone in it there are different narratives of how that impact plays out, but it does impact us. Mm. Honestly, I'm a little mind blown thinking about how patriarchy is also oppressing men. Like, I don't know why I've kind of heard of the conversation, you know, toxic masculinity. I've seen Mm. that and witnessed that in relationships and friendships with male identifying folks. And I can see how that, hurts their life. I never looked at that through the frame of this is a patriarchal piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's pretty mind-blowing to think about, to be honest, just knowing yeah, that. It's a thing that, again, we don't really often think about, but I think it definitely shows up. Mm-hmm. Would you say that the toxic masculine, I don't know, the masculine values that are essentially toxic. How does that play into male's ability to seek help in this Mm. field? Yeah. Like I said a little bit earlier, I think it plays in the role of like, you know, it's really not, you're, we're not allowed to ask for help or 
the kind of help that we're going to seek out is something more like, you know, someone like Gary V or like Joe Rogan, like we're going to go for the help that says like, well, dude, I'm just taking the supplement and I'm biohacking this. And like, I've thought out the problem of my body better than my body. And so here are the tools or the hacks that I'm going to use to fix it. That's the help that we're going for, right? We're, we're reinforcing this idea that you just have the sort of formula wrong. Here's a different formula. And if you apply this formula, here's the fix. Mm-hmm. And I think it would be very radical for folks to say it's masculine to say there might not be a fix, right? It's like, what if it's to say the help is about me being able to tolerate the discomfort and understand these feelings more and sit with these feelings more than having to quote unquote fix them. I think we could shift this idea of what is masculine to say being masculine is also about saying I need help. Being masculine is also being vulnerable to each other and to our partners and to our loved ones and to the world. And I think it's the sort of what the help that people seek is more about coming up with a better fix rather than trying to acknowledge the feelings that come with it. Mm, That's so typical, like male-female dynamic too. If you take it out to relationship where the woman comes to her partner with a problem and instead of listening, validating, the male immediately jumps to, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? Mm -hmm. And it causes that almost relationship struggle too. Because that's- seems to be the automatic nature that has right. been kind of patterned into right. identifying folks. And, and I would even say like, I think patriarchy reinforces gender norms and mm. that this is what it has right. to look like. Right. And right. I think that's sort of what you're speaking to, right. Is that like, we're sort of saying like, this is what it, it means to be male identified. This is what it means to be female identified and not honoring the spectrum with which gender shows up honoring the fact that, you know, I can express my gender in many different ways and I don't have to conform to one rule of how to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So another question I have for you is how might you help men, like as in your role right now, how do you help men reach body acceptance? Mm -hmm. And would you say there's a different approach to helping men than to helping women. And I know there's so many genders in between. So I apologize mm-hmm. for this kind of like dual gender conversation mm-hmm. in a way. I know there's so much in between, but mm-hmm. how would you say the approaches are currently, if any? Yeah. Well, for all the men I work with, I have a line of supplements that I sell them and I give them a, a new formula to fix their body. And it's really easy. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, I was like, what? Yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, No, I think one of the things that I try to do in my work, I think it's really important to validate someone's experience and to, you know, with the folks that I work with individually, and I also have a men's group that I run, I think a big part of it is being able to hold space for someone and say, your experience is valid. You're not making it up. It's totally understandable why you feel this way. And by doing that, we open the door to saying, okay, if I'm allowed to feel these things or it's normal to feel these things, how do I work on, again, tolerating it, understanding it's okay to feel these feelings and allow them to move through me rather than fixating on them or 
ignoring them or, you know, trying to numb them. It's sort of saying like, you know, what you've been doing to cope with these feelings is valid also, right? Mm -hmm. You're just trying to make it better. I get that, right? And instead of like saying, oh, you've been doing it all wrong, it's rather like you've been doing the best you can. Like this, you're just doing what sort of the tools that you've been given. Let's try and bring in a different mindset of tools, right? To help you manage this issue. So I think there's a big part of it that is leaning towards what is acceptance. What is acceptance of our body today, especially as we age? And what is acceptance of caring for ourselves in this, in the body we have today, not the body we want tomorrow? And the other thing is, I think it's really important to bring in a lot of discussions around self-compassion. And that self-compassion is not weakness. Self-compassion is not giving up. Self-compassion is not making an excuse. Self-compassion is honoring the challenges that exist in being human in 2022. And there are many challenges. Like it is fucking hard to be alive right now. And so of course, we're going to go to anything that soothes those uncomfortable feelings, those fears, those anxieties. And, you know, it's sort of saying like, Hey, I'm just doing the best I can with the tools I have today. I might learn different tools, but like, I'm doing the best I can right now. Mm -hmm. So valuable. And I can see that being helpful for all genders across the board. Honestly, that's Mm -hmm. how how it should be is just reaching that level of acceptance and using self-compassion along the way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what advice do you have for men who feel left out of the recovery conversation? Mm, Well, going back to what I just said, I I completely (laughs) understand why you feel left out, Mm. right? There's a lot of things that would make it really reinforcing to sit out of the recovery world. So as a treatment provider, right? I guess my first thing is to say, I'm sorry. Like, I think we owe you an apology. And I think the community owes you an apology to sort of say like, we haven't done very well. And I would extend that same apology to people of any marginalized identity, to people of color, the LGBTQ community. You know, I think there's a lot of apologies that need to be spoken and for people to hear to that understand why you don't feel accepted or this is something that you're allowed to do. The other part then is also to understand that recovery is really hard. Like it is to recover into diet culture is mm-hmm. really hard. It is like 10 out of 10 hard and it's not linear and it will take time. And for some people, it takes way more time than what they had in their head. And some people it's less, but I think it takes time and it's not linear. There will be times where it seems to be going really well. And sometimes it will be really hard. And I guess when we feel like this, like no one really understands that, right? We don't really also then say, well, I'm struggling. So I guess it must not be for me. So I'll quit. And I would just like to people to be curious to say, you know, if the understanding is, yeah, this is 10 out of 10 hard and it's not going to be linear, what does healing really look like for me? Mm. And that it might not look like the poster that I saw on or the after school special I saw, right? Yeah. It might look very different, but that doesn't mean it's not valid and it's not going to be helpful. So I think, you know, in doing that is understanding that my vision of healing and recovery will look like will be my own. It won't be what 
they did or what they said, what they think it should be. Mm-hmm. It will be my own and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Recovery is so different for everyone. It's a different path. Mm-hmm. And it's an expression of that person, right? And yeah. uh, it's helpful to remember that it's not going to look like anyone else's. So yes, I completely hear you on that. What advice would you give to men who are sick, who have an eating disorder, where should they go? Like, what is the first step Mm. they take in a world that's not so open and welcoming to maybe treating or healing men, right? It seems to be a female-oriented world we're in for recovery sphere. It's a really good, it's interesting. I think a lot of folks that I work with are starting or their entry point is to talking about it with their therapist or their social worker or, you know, their psychoanalyst, whatever it is. So I think for a lot of folks, having the discussion there is probably a really good step, Mm -hmm. right? And sort of knowing that like, hey, I know I probably need to talk about food. I don't want to, right? This is like not okay. My brain's telling me this is not okay. But I also think I need to talk about it. So I think that to me, that's a very interesting place to look at is like, are, if you're in therapy already, bring it up, like talk about food with them. I think there are a lot of treatment centers across the country that are doing, in the United States, I'll speak from, from experience there, that are doing a lot of good work. And I think it's okay to call those admissions teams and to say like, hey, I might need an assessment. Like this is something I've been struggling with because oftentimes the screening, right, that a doctor might do or that some other healthcare provider might do is going to fall through the cracks, right? So it's going to take someone advocating for themselves Mm. to say, hey, I need some help. Mm -hmm. Like this is, again, just like you said with your own experience, like I know that this is not sustainable. I don't know what forward looks like, but I got to start somewhere. And so, you know, Reaching out to those admissions teams is great. I think any of the sort of nonprofit organizations that are across the country, like NIDA, the Alliance, which is on the East Coast, you know, INAD, right? I think all of these places are really good places to start also as a way to sort of say, hey, like where, where are the conversations or where's the sort of ways in which I can lean into this healing And, you know, I would also say, like, find a really good dietitian out there who is versed in these types of conversations, not someone who's going to say, oh, you're, you know, you're struggling with, with binge eating and you're in a larger body. Well, let's just give you a low calorie meal plan and then we'll, that'll help fix it, right? Is finding a dietitian who knows eating disorders to sort of say, like, I, you know, this is really scary, but I think I need to start talking about this. And, and I think those are great places to start. I would also say, if you notice your friend struggling, I think just saying, hey, I see you sometimes having a really hard time with these things. If you ever want to talk about it, I'm here to listen. Mm. I'm not pressuring you, right? But I'm just, if you ever want to talk about it, dude, give me a call and I'm going to listen, right? Like, I think, what would it, how amazing would it be if our community, right, shows up and says, hey, if I see someone struggling, I'm going to ask them, if I can help in some way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's really relieving to even hear you just bring up as a reminder, which is men can have those conversations with their friends. Oh, right? totally. 
<laughs> it's like I was it's just really helpful. And I'm sure there are even there are probably many female identifying folks or queer folks on here who have male friends they're concerned about who they would want to yeah. just kind of nudge, give them a gentle nudge about opening a conversation or potentially getting resources or help. Yeah. Okay. So, oh man, I know we're coming up on time. I have like two quick questions I want to ask yeah. you. If okay with that. I'm good. Yeah. Don't worry. Okay. So bringing it back to kind of the main listeners on this podcast, there's a lot of female identifying folks on mm-hmm. this podcast. So, you know, while I was writing these questions, I was thinking there might be a little bit of resistance or even like resentment bubbling, just knowing that we're inviting like a male into a female space. We're starting to open up men, you know, men into this mm-hmm. conversation. So what do you have to say to women who have been kind of harmed by comments or jokes and the beauty standards that have been set by men, you know, due due to patriarchy and you know, yeah. we've received all these messages that seem to be from men about yeah. our bodies. Yeah. Well, this is a ch- another chance for me to say, like, you know, I'm sorry. You know, like there's so many stories of people who have been harmed by misogynistic ways of thinking around bodies. And, you know, it's understandable why you would want a safe space that is free when there's trauma, right? Like, we don't want to be re traumatized. Right. We don't want to be in a space where that could happen. And so I get that. I completely understand. And I think sometimes, not sometimes, I think it is acceptable and I think and understandable to have spaces that are going to feel much safer around difficult conversations for a lot of folks. That's going to be really necessary. And I completely understand that. And there is also when appropriate for people, right? I think there's a way to also heal that by understanding that those, that misogyny, right? That sexism, that those beauty standards are impacting male identified folks as well. Again, it's a different experience, but there is an impact. And as we can come together and hear those impacts and hear the healing, right? Or hear the experiences, that's what leads to a lot of healing, right? So for some folks, male identified hearing the impact of, you know, I would even say like porn, right. And the impact of, you know, like things like Victoria's Secrets or beauty standards, hearing the impact of that on folks and just hearing it, not getting defensive, but just listening. Oh, like I might, because of my privilege as a male, I might not have ever thought about it in this way, but I think it's important to hear those stories. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that can provide a better understanding of all the harm that is done across so many folks when it comes to these things. So I think I really appreciate people's choice in that, right? That like, yeah, I might need a space that is more, that feels safer right now. That's totally understandable. And I think when we can come together as a group, that there is also opportunities for healing, you know? So I think it's really understandable to be apprehensive. And in my work, you know, especially as I was beginning to work in eating disorders, like pretty much 99% of my clients were female identified. And I would say a large percentage of them had some form of sexual trauma. And it was really important for me as a male provider to think about what I do physically in a room, right? How I 
carry myself, how I sit, how I position furniture, right? All the things that I can do to signal that this is going to be a space that is safe for you and understanding the impact of trauma on this. I think for me, it like opens up a whole different understanding of how my body can be perceived as scary to a lot of people. And by me doing something different, right? And providing a very different experience for people can also provide space for healing. Mm-hmm. Thank you for answering that charged question, but you yeah. I brought up some really valid points and just reminders, which is there are experiences to be heard and shared on both sides. And the more we can open up that conversation and recognize, you know, the the harm there or the trauma there on both sides or along the whole spectrum, the better off we're going to be. And I just mm-hmm. know, like as a female or, you know, being in a space where a male is really conscientious of that, like body language, positioning, furniture in a room, all of that, it immediately transforms the situation mm-hmm. from one that might be threatening to one that could feel safe. So I totally right appreciate that you acknowledge that. And I'm wondering if any male folks listening to this have even considered that much nuance in the way interactions are. So hopefully more and more, right? Yeah. yeah. It's a helpful conversation uh, just to build that awareness, but all right. So I guess my final question here is just making sure we do encourage men to seek help. So what do you think needs to be done to make recovery and healing more accessible for men? And how do we make this space more accessible for men in general? I think there's a lot of ways in which we can, especially, so if you're a provider, right, whether you have a private practice or you work for a treatment center, I think it's important in how you market yourself, Mm -hmm. right? What are the images you're using? What are the you know, what are, how are you sort of displaying even your, your brand, right? I think is really important to folks. I think we can, you know, do sort of say that, right? As marketing or as, as providers, as business folks, as treatment centers, we can sort of say like, Hey, I, I work with men, right? I work with male identified folks and helping them heal. Like I want to like specialize in this area or I want to, you know, that I'm making sure my practice is inclusive in these ways. I also think, you know, a part of our job is to reach out to communities that aren't traditionally reached out to for these discussions. Like, what would it be like, right? If you're doing outreach or you're doing marketing, what would it mean to get on that podcast that isn't focused on eating disorders, that is focused on, you know, a largely male audience and have this discussion, right? So I think it's like Mm -hmm. almost like sort of breaking the mold of how we do who we're going to reach out to, to say, this is an okay conversation. And, you know, and then I think when people do reach out and they do as if you're a provider or a treatment center and someone does reach out, you know, I think it's, even if you do like a sort of a consult call with folks, right. Is like saying like, what, you know, what, is there anything I can do in us starting to work together that would help you feel more comfortable? Right. Or, you know, how do you feel about working with someone of a different gender? Is that, is there anything I can do to help make that easier for you? Is there any, I just want you to know it's something I want to talk about. If you want to talk about it, 
right? I'm open to that conversation. So as providers, we can be in the room and we can always solicit feedback. We can always ask for, how are you feeling right now? Not just sort of talking about these things, but how are you feeling doing this work with me? Is there something I can do differently? I can do to support you in a better way. So I think being really open to feedback and then listening to the feedback, not saying like, well, well, this is a problem client and they've been to 5,000 other providers and they just bounce around. What I think that's BS, right? I think yeah. people's feedback is valid. And I think we need to listen to it. We need to take it in, see it as a gift and then be curious about what that feedback means for our work. So I think there's a lot of things we can do to sort of bring down the veil of what is allowed, what we're allowed to talk about in a session that mm -hmm. might help people feel like, oh, I have more of a voice in here than I thought, right? I'm allowed to actually talk about my discomfort of working with a female identified provider or someone who's in a smaller body, right? I'm allowed to talk or someone who's in a bigger body. Like this is, it's okay to talk about this stuff rather than just sweep it under the rug. Mm, that's really helpful for everybody to hear is that you're allowed to, if anywhere in therapy or with your providers, kind of be more radically honest than you might be in any other space. Mm -hmm. So yeah. opening up about your vulnerabilities and feelings about them specifically as a provider and the provider opening that door. Yeah. Well, inviting that conversation to be had. That's so powerful. Yeah. Well, all right, Aaron. So you have been such a wealth of knowledge and information for us. I was really curious if you could just share, you know, any resources you have or resources that you know of that could be supportive mm -hmm. of male listeners, but also anyone listening. Well, like I said, my line of supplements will be on Etsy. Oh, very <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. So my website is my name, Aaron Flores, rdn.com. So you can check me out there. I have an Instagram page of the same name, Aaron Flores, RDN. And I just started a new podcast called Men Unscripted. And I, I mentioned it before, but what I'm doing is interviewing men about their body story and they're all anonymous. So they're all using aliases so that they can be really vulnerable and share what it's been like for them to live in their body, both really hard stuff and also like the ways in which they're maybe starting to heal and do better or feel more embodied. So I think that's a really great resource for everyone to sort of listen to and understand. I think I'm not the only person doing this work. And I think there's there are other folks out there that are sort of talking about these things. I really enjoy Matt McGorry. He's an actor. He's got a great Instagram. I think the book Heavy by Kisei Lehman is amazing. Talking, It's his memoir about being a Black man in a larger body growing up in the South is really amazing. And I think, you know, once you sort of uncover some of these things, I think you'll find a lot of other folks doing things like this and having these conversations that are actually really amazing. I'm so happy that you could help open that door today and provide, you know, your resources, but also shed light on some other folks out there doing this work. Cause it's so great when you can kind of go down this rabbit hole of, well, now I found mm -hmm. Aaron's work. Who else is out there? Yeah. How many voices can I surround myself with to normalize yeah. or bring less shame around my own experience. So. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, Aaron, again, thank you so much. It's been a true pleasure speaking with you and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks, Meg. I really am happy to talk to you today. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Bye. <laughs>